Gerald. Okay. Um, this is a. Uh, uh, this is my third year at the Aspen uh, Ideas Festival. My name is Tana Hasi Coates. I'm a senior editor at The Atlantic. Um, but by far, this is, uh, for me, I think going to be the most pleasurable uh, panel that I've had. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, when I was a young man and an undergraduate, um, many of the people who I'm here uh, on this panel with, I, I studied their works, and so they were sort of professors in absentia uh, for me. So it's just... Uh, it's just an incredible privilege. Um, we have uh, Claude Steele, who's uh, the provost at Columbia. You guys are going to have to forgive me. Um, I didn't know I was doing the introduction, so my introductions are going to... The conversation will be better than the introduction. <laughs> um, we have Ellis Coase from Newsweek, uh, who I know uh, from his book, Rage of the Privileged Class, which was huge when I was in college and still reverberates today. Um, we have uh, Patricia Williams, who's at uh, Columbia Law School. Columbia is very well represented up here today, um, and who also writes a column for the nation, uh, Diary of a Mad Lawyer. I got that right, didn't I? Law professor. Law professor. Law professor. Okay. <laughs> mad right. law professor. Okay, got it. Um, and David Levering Lewis, uh, who's at NYU, uh, esteemed historian, uh, author of When Harlem Was in Vogue, uh, award-winning two-volume Du Bois uh, biography. Um, I, I have to say, so the, the uh, when I saw the uh, title for this panel and I saw uh, the word post-racial on it, I have to say I blanched a little bit. I see that word. I get a migraine, like, right away. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> like, virtually immediately. But that's okay. I didn't build a panel, but we're going to go there. Um, but my question for you guys is, why do we keep hearing that word? What, what does it mean to people? Um, does it reflect some sort of latent desire that we have to go somewhere for Obama, for a person to take us somewhere that maybe we need to do the work to do? I guess that's a bit of a leading question, but I'm going to throw that out there, and I'll start down here with Claude, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I'll start with an with a, 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 a experiment that illustrates a point, which I think is involved in answering your question. Uh, it, this is, comes from the social psychology literature, but if you give a group of people who've been historically disenfranchised, uh, if you give them even a small percentage of them, a chance to, to join the mainstream and to, to, uh, for upward mobility, that kind of thing, you give a small percent, 3%, 2% of them, then you start to see a shift away from the idea of collective political action in behalf of the group and a shift toward uh, individual achievement and, and, and a focus on individual opportunity and, and, and the like. So I, I think in, in part when I compare these days to my youth of the civil rights uh, era in the 60s and so on, uh, I, I think we're, something like that's going on where, where there's a, a greater uh, interest in individual means of, of, of mobility and a, and a lesser interest, uh, Ellis and I were talking about this last night, a lesser interest in the idea of collective action as a part of your group identity mobilizing, moving the group forward. I think there's less of that at, at play. And certainly an Obama presidency uh, puts a real fine point on that, mm -hmm. that, that, wow, the president of the United States is African-American. So mm -hmm. I think that's a huge signal that, that has that. That's one fact. The other fact, though, is that uh, if you look at racial inequalities in terms of, of health care, health outcomes, uh, education, criminal justice, wealth, these racial inequalities are still there and in, in some instances even greater than they have been. Uh, they're even increasing in the last 20 years or so. 
So at, this, at the same moment when I think the whole society has uh, a greater hope that, uh, that racial inequality will be overcome by individual effort and focus, uh, there is at the same time this reality that these, in, that these inequalities are still uh, uh, incredibly profound. And, and they reflect our history. They reflect the, the structures of society and how they recapitulate these inequalities and, and the like. And uh, there will be, I suppose, the the implication of what I'm saying, there may be less interest in collective attention to these issues than there has been in the past as we shift toward a more individualistic focus of, uh, uh, toward remedy. And that, that's a concern. That's a concern about uh, the whole notion of a post-racial uh, era that, that, that we're moving into. There's a, there's a good side to it, but there's this, there's this, this, re this real issue of, of us uh, perhaps ignoring something that's profound. I'll, I'll end by saying I think, you know, I, I admire the Obama uh, strategy and maybe it embodies a new strategy, which is to focus on issues that disproportionately uh, would, would rectify racial inequalities, like health care. Right. That's something that you can cast as something that incorporates everybody. Every, it's, 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 a, it's a national inclusive uh, concern, but it disproportionately affects disenfranchised groups, and that may be the, the kind of strategy going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're asking us, in effect, to put America on the, on the couch, um, because it goes heavy into psychology as to why this thing pops up. I mean, I, I and then that's obviously Claus Phil much more than it is mine. Um, I have yet to meet a black person, African-American, who believes we're in a post-racial society. I have yet to meet that person. Uh, so, so the question is, why, why does this phrase keep coming up? And, let me, and before I, I address that, uh, you mentioned the rage of a privileged class. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a book I published um, about a decade and a half ago. And I'm doing some research now for what, it, in some ways, is a follow-up book. And part, of, and part of the research that I'm doing, I'm doing a um, conducted a survey of, of roughly 200 black Harvard MBAs um, and posed a whole series of questions to them. Uh, one of the questions was, uh, how much discrimination do various groups face in American society? Uh, when I asked it about whites, uh, 97, six, 96% said none. 3% uh, said a little in terms of how much discrimination whites face. When I asked about African Americans, 60% said a lot, 39% said some, 1% said a little, nobody said none. <laughs> Uh, when I asked them themselves, do you face discrimination in your own workplace? 79% said, yes, we do. Uh, do you face discrimination outside the workplace? 89% said, yes, we do. Now, this is, this is a, a, talking about a privileged group. I mean, 40% of this group have reported household income of over $400,000 a year. So this, 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 these, and just to get clear, are they talking about themselves or are they talking about African Americans at large? Uh, they're talking about themselves in terms of discrimination um, that they face, 79% discrimination against in society at large. Uh, the total came to um, 99%, basically. Um, so they're talking about both. Uh, and they're talking about discrimination both at the workplace and outside the workplace. So you have a group of people who are among the most privileged people in, in American society of, of any race right. uh, who are saying they still occupy a world in which discrimination is a very constant and real factor for them. Uh, so, so to get back to your question, why, why, do we, why do we even have this discussion about this being a post-racial society? 
I think it's because there is a huge psychological investment in wanting to believe we are at least getting there, and that's on the parts of a lot of people, many of them white, some of them black. I mean, there was a, um, a poll that got a lot of attention after uh, doing the inauguration week uh, that Gallup released. And the question was, um, do, we, do you think Martin Luther King's dream has been achieved? Um, the vast majority of African Americans said yes. Mm. Now, the dream was not defined. Mm. And if you probed that, I think you, you might have gotten a different answer. But the inclination was to say, wow, we've made some huge advance. And I think um, uh, Shelby still a different person than Claude, I should say, right. now, has been arguing for years about this white guilt thing mm -hmm. and the fact that it should not exist. Uh, certainly one way to get rid of white guilt is to assume we have a society which is post-racial, mm -hmm. is to assume we have a society in which, in which race no longer is much of a factor. So to the extent you can believe that, uh, then there's no necessity at all to even entertain the idea of, of feeling guilty because, in fact, we've reached the society in which the dream has been achieved, and we'll reach this, this society in, in which African Americans, those who are willing to work, those who are willing to put forth the effort, those who are willing to educate themselves, uh, have as good a chance as, as whites do. I mean, it's, 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 it reminds me a little bit, you know, for, for years there was this concept uh, in Brazil, uh, the um, racial democracy. Democracia cell. I mean, this whole idea that they just didn't see race. They had gotten beyond that. And yet, when you look at how society actually functioned and still functions in, in Brazil, uh, you saw that the elites were almost always light, and the ones who were non-elites were disproportionately of color on one sort or another. Um, but it was a useful myth, uh, and, it, and it helped um, ease the friction that otherwise would have existed in that society. So to, so to sort of wrap up, why do we have this discussion? Well, it's a provocative term for the media to toss around. Uh, but in addition to it being a provocative term for the media to toss around, I think it's, it's a useful way for people who want to step away from any sort of responsibility for the lingering impact of this heritage of discrimination to deal with it. Um, I think that... Um there, not only do very few African Americans believe that we're in a post-racial movement, I also think that very few white people really believe that we're in a post-racial movement in some general sense. And so my reading of the term post-racial is really that it's a post-remedial moment, that, there, that, that as it gets used by the larger and generally, in, in white media at any rate, it's really about wanting to terminate um, the kinds of legal remediation like affirmative action, mm -hmm. um, or that there's no need for it. And so I see or hear Post-racialism is a kind of new exceptionalism, which has always existed about, you know, in the Old South, the myths of the good Negro and so forth. But the usefulness of, or the utility of, of, of exceptionalism is that it proves the rule. Um, that is to say that if the rest are on the bottom and you have this exception, then all the rest could be just like that. If only you worked hard enough or got yourself neater or cleaner. Um, and so when I look at Obama, it feels like he has sort of rotated through almost, well, I, I, I can think of at least six different versions of exceptionalism. Um, you know, first of all, starting with Biden's uh, neat, clean, no baggage, no ghetto, and so forth, um, um, which again sends the message that if only you know you would act more like this, if you were neat and clean, then you would, um, then then the rest wouldn't be like that. Um, 
Then there was a kind of um, flirting through Reverend Wright in which he sort of did become, you know, so he didn't just exceed people's expectations, he became everybody's worst expectation. Um, buffoonish, radical, um, white-hating, and so forth. And, uh, and, 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 and Obama recouped, recuperated from that. Um, he did it through his elegant speech. Uh, but in that recuperation, um, I think he confounded the media again. It was very hard to categorize him. Um, he became, and, and so he was sort of forced in the, in the in, 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 you know, over time in the, in the, in the, in the wake of that, um, not just to be exceptional, but to be um, sort of elitist. He was accused of being very elite, um, of um, uh, not just, and certainly there was some part of the African-American community said that he was too white. Um, but again, I'm talking about the larger, the, the general media, um, in which he became um, arrogant and uppity, um, there was there were a lot of uh, there, he went through a whole period in which that was really whether whether his arrogance or his sedidiness or whatever his his elitism his his eastern elitism um, <clears throat> um, was a specific you know subspecies of eastern um, uh, wasp elite um, that af that afflicted African Americans who quote didn't know their place and you heard that vocabulary a lot thrown around in certain part of the of the campaign. Um, then, you know, there was a lot of fascination with his biracialism, so that he was a new phenomenon that we've never, ever seen in American history before, even as it reiterated a lot of um, post-Reconstruction politics. Um, and I thought he was masterful in sort of using some of the rhetoric of political um, placement, um, the history of political placement. For example, the immigrant myth. Very few politicians really get anywhere without being able to staple themselves onto the immigrant myth, except his immigrant father um, came from Africa. So this was sort of, how do you place that? And, and then, you know, his pioneer slave-holding, slave, you know, slave-descending ancestors um, were the white Nebraska uh, uh, side of his family. And people were confused by that. Um, and ultimately, it seems to me that um, while he was masterful in all of this, and it really allowed him um, to be heard in ways that I think he would not have been heard if he'd been more conveniently and, and traditionally stereotyped. Um, he's resisted it so well that he ended up being uncategorizable and unstereotypical, typical, typable. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, it's almost that he's come to rest in something which is alien, and it has been literally categorized as alien, which is to say that he's been pushed into that box, which is foreign, um, Kenyan Muslim. with undocumented M Kenyan Muslim, uh, part of the immigrant wave that's about to take over, and um, the degree to which um, he is something which is perhaps a part of a new diasporic American citizenship, which is cosmopolitan, which is multilingual, um, which is educated from all kinds of inter interdisciplinary perspectives, um, is completely lost, I'm afraid, in a moment that is um, increasingly nativist, know-nothing, anti-intellectual um, to a great degree, or, or at least the, the, the aspersions which are being cast on him come from that. Um, and so I think it's a tension, ultimately, not just between whether we're in a post-racial moment, about, but whether we're also sort of resisting um, the, the internationalism, the cosmopolitanism, um, uh, the lack and, and in, a, in a moment of defunded education, resistance to um, learning other languages and other ways in a globalized economy, and that it seems to me is the essence of his essence as a, a, as, as a, as a representative of the American dilemma, the new American dilemma.
No, that, that's a, a seems to be a wonderful iteration of the many uh, <coughs> representations that Obama has uh, 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 meant to the American uh, public. Um, Post-racial, uh, the <coughs> the mythos uh, mythos of that it, it has a statistical oddity, though it seems to me, uh, and that is that um, if it is that uh, we uh, empowered a person who will advance a uh, democracy which incorporates all the things we want uh, that give us uh, the ideal uh, social contract. The point is that, of course, in 2008, in November, uh, the majority population, then still white Americans, uh, did not vote for Obama, but voted for uh, John McCain, and Sarah Palin. Uh, <clears throat> most of us have elided that uh, inconvenient statistic, but by uh, 12%, uh, white Americans went for uh, the Republican candidate. Uh, but then fast forward, and we have the uh, almost ululation about the new era of uh, post-racialism. Uh, <clears throat> and it is, as uh, Claude Steele suggests, uh, a, a worthwhile uh, agenda, perhaps, however disbelieving most African Americans are, that we are at this moment in time there, uh, or <clears throat> white Americans uh, wondering um, how long and what cost uh, will be incurred in order to get there. Uh, but um, uh, the fact that uh, he did not receive uh, the mandate that has been fictionally uh, presented, has a lot to do, it seems to me, with the fact that <clears throat> at this point uh, there is uh, a fragmenting of the constituencies uh, that have uh, um, uh, empowered him and that hope he, uh, hope he will um, achieve their agendas. You mean the young, the African-American? Uh, that the is, the, not only the young African-Americans, the... Um, uh, people who are concerned about ecology, the people who are concerned about education. But David, let me ask you a question, though, because you know, not since LBJ has a Democratic candidate got the majority of white votes uh, in this country. So to what extent do you read Obama not getting them? It's just a phenomenon of the fact that Democrats since 1964 have not gotten the majority of white votes in the presidential contest. Um, I mean, Obama actually got more than his predecessor running for, for um, the uh, for the um, presidency. So, 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 to what extent do you interpret that in some way racially, and to what extent is it simply Democratic versus Republican politics? And can I just pile on on top of that? And, and mm -hmm. To what extent is that also racialized? Well, I, I sort of going back in, in real time, just before the uh, economic crash whatever we're calling it, the Great Recession, it was an open question, more than an open question. I think one might well have thought that uh, Obama would not win. It would have been a close election. It turns out that post uh, the uh, recession and the uh, poor performance of uh, the McCain team, uh, Obama uh, became far more credible. Uh, and uh, was a, a perfect, appropriate hook for uh, panic. Um, <clears throat> so uh, 
it uh, seems to me that we have two things going on. The majority population probably uh, with a uh, considerable uh, uh, number of the those who did in fact finally vote for Obama, voting for uh, the Republicans, and then the uh, Great Recession uh, reduces uh, that uh, number. Uh, nonetheless, the uh, uh, majority uh, of uh, the white voters do uh, in this crisis still vote for uh, McCain uh, and, and Palin. Uh, I, I bring that up only because as one becomes more and more concerned about where we are going historically, um, the uh, dubiety that now begins to burble up and is being uh, expressed through the uh, Tea Party uh, anguish um, <clears throat> begins indeed to uh, pollute the atmosphere in ways that uh, uh, Patricia Williams was saying, where all the things that should be positive uh, valences in Obama become uh, things of concern. What his alterity suddenly becomes a major uh, prepossession. He's an American, yes, but what kind of American? He's self-invented in very odd ways. If you read this marvelous book by David Remnick, which does such a fine job of, of reconstructing Obama as he constructed himself, uh, you can see there are two ways to read the phenomenon. Uh, one is of someone who has made himself so many things that <clears throat> if you become highly critical as uh, the economic situation doesn't improve, he then gets picked apart and things that should be a plus become a minus, things that are a minus <laughs> become, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, uh, a, a, a plus. Um, well, so that post-racialism, it seems to me, was premised on uh, a, a vote that suggested, when you looked at it, that we were going to be in for uh, times of great turbulence in terms of uh, uh, committing ourselves to uh, the idea of a post-racial America. And it may well be that uh, as we decide that we're not in a post-racial moment, and there could be another paradigm in which we might say it is the accommodation of race uh, in order to make the American uh, promise uh, fully um, um, uh, worthy of itself. In other words, not stepping away from race, but bringing it into uh, the, the mix of aspirations. Stepping into the punch. Patricia, <laughs> <laughs> um, you very eloquently... Uh, talked about the many iterations of uh, the many public iterations of Barack Obama uh, throughout the campaign and the many iterations of himself throughout his life. My question um, is how much of this, and you know, please feel free to jump in. Anyway, I address this to Patricia because she brought it up. How much of that reflects the singular aspects of Obama who, you know, as, as we all know, has an incredible story and an incredible narrative? Um, and how much of it reflects a diversity that was always true in the African-American uh, community? Frederick Douglass had a great story, too. Um, is it specific to him, or does it say something broader about who we are and where we are at this point uh, right now? Well, I think it's both. It, it is absolutely both. 
Um, I, what I was trying to emphasize is the, is the degree to which I think it's been somewhat relabeled and refashioned, but, we, but, but, but um, there have been remarkable characters in our political history before, and um, he shouldn't be isolated from that, and particularly this, this exceptionalism right. um, and, and the way it's worked around him I think is a very important factor to recognize because it, is so, it gets repeated so much throughout our history, and I right. think it, it's, it's blinding. Um, but at the same time, he is an exceptional, exceptional yes. person. Somebody yeah. called him earlier in the Michael Jackson of, of, I mean, the Michael Jordan, I'm sorry. The Michael Jordan. <laughs> I hope not the Michael Jackson. Forgive me. <laughs> the Michael Jordan Michael of the Bush, political Michael world. Jackson, Michael yes. <laughs> and, I, and, 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 and let me say, <laughs> I, I really resist both, you know, the analogies to, I mean, because, we, because there's a way in which our, you know, our, our our, our citation for um, marvelous um, accomplishments of African Americans always reaches either the, the entertainment world right. or the sports world, right. and and so I, I, I raise either of them to sort of resist that right. um, to some degree. Um, at the same time, because he is so genuinely um, a remarkable person, truly a remarkable person on many many levels, and again I recommend the the, the David Remnick book because I think it really reminds you. Um, what um, you know that Horatio Alger might be a better category, you know, than than, than Michael Jordan. That he is somebody who skipped classes, um, that is to say, um, uh, social classes, mm -hmm. um, um, and rose to the top like cream because of who he is and his and his abilities, which are quite remarkable. Um, but that, um, and 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 I think that that um, uh, that very quality of genuine exceptional ability, not exceptionalism, um, is uh, something which gave rise to, uh, and this is perhaps the good side of the hopes for post-racial, I mean, it, it not achieved, but actually the aspiration to that, um, which was that he was a little bit like Jesus Christ. He was Martin Luther King. He was all of the dreams of the civil rights movement come to a head. Even David Remnick's book, poses him as the... As, 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 the as Joshua the, generation. The Joshua generation, yes. yeah. So that there's something mythic, there's something prophetic, there's something um, very narratively powerful about his life um, that is both rooted in who he is, but also, I think, is similarly blinding in the individual sense. Right. And I think that's the part that it creates much disappointment in many, in many people. If you actually looked at Obama, what he was saying... Um, who he was, where he came from, as brilliant as he is, he was always a centrist. He was always a University of Chicago right. um, economics um, person right up there. I mean, he, was, he was not somebody who was um, uh, 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 um, as spectacularly um, um, likely to deliver us from um, bondage as Moses, as Martin Luther King, um, and so in that way, the media, I think, or the expectations of him set him up for some degree of disappointment or for a reality check. It, but that I don't Moses think we person could never have been elected. It, well, I think to some degree we thought we were electing. I mean, some people well, I think, were actually well, well, thought, I they think were some people thought they were electing Moses. Yeah. I think Adam, yeah. that's the beauty of it. Other people thought they were electing something very different. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the first time that I, I met um, Mr. Obama, was um, in Kenya, actually, in the, in the, in the uh, Serena Hotel too, uh, in Nairobi. <laughs> uh, he had gone there and this before, he had elect he, before he had announced that he was going to run. It was in 2007. Uh, it was part of his um, trip through Africa uh, that he was making his first big foreign policy trip as, as, a, as a senator other than the one he had made, 
made to Russia before that, but, uh, but this first one he's making by himself. And and um, so he didn't have the Secret Service around him. It was a risk. It was him and his press secretary and a few other folks and et cetera. And at one point, you know, we had a conversation, and uh, and somehow we got into this conversation about his appeal to different people. And he smiled at one point, and he said, you know, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, I, I know a lot of different people see different parts of me that they can relate to. And he was, he was in, in effect, acknowledging, yeah, if you want to see Moses in him, fine, you can see that. If you want to see, you know, his, his, his white parent in him, fine, you can see that. If you want to see, see the, the centrist Democrat in him, fine, he'll let you see that. Uh, none of it is inauthentic. Um, but the phenomena, he's a bit of a, of a, of a shapeshifter in that sense. Uh, you see what you want to see with him. And so a lot of people brought Is that on him, though, or is it on us? Well, I'm not saying it in a pejorative sense. I, right. think, I think he acknowledges that. He's a politician. Uh, any politician is going to want to be as broadly popular as he can. And if, if a politician thinks, well, this part of me appeals to you, and then that's the part he's going to show you, which is not to say... That that part is not real. Right. Uh, it, it's just it's just that there there is an emphasis on it. But I, but I think this and and then and then underscoring the fact he's a politician. I think any black politician um, who's trying to appeal to a white constituency knows that it's not within your interest to push any sort of agenda that suggests race. So so so, so you ask about why this whole thing of post racialism? Well, certainly. Yeah, someone like Obama was not going to confront that directly, except for the one time he had to in his speech. Uh, I mean, to, to get away from Obama for a second, I mean, look at what happened uh, just this year to Altura Davis, um, who was trying to become the um, the first black governor from Alabama. Right. Uh, he decided that in order to appeal to the constituencies he was trying to reach, he basically had to distance himself from anything that was considered black, right. and, and pretty much. I refused to sit for endorsement sessions with the, with the long-time standing uh, black political organizations. Uh, essentially refused to acknowledge that there was, were any, any issues that had anything to do with race. So, and so voted I so, against, so, 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 against health care, too, right? Uh, and he voted against the Obama's health care program, the only, the only uh, black congressman to, to do so. Um, I think part of what, what he, he lost. He lost, he, he lost the primary. You know, he, he didn't even get to the general election. He lost the primary. And, 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 and he lost a lot of black votes because, because you know, he just assumed you know, that he was going to leap into the general election, that the black folks were going to go with him and, and, and white liberals were going to make a coalition. But, it, but whatever he assumed, it didn't work out. But, you know, <laughs> you know but, 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 but part of that bedrock assumption that he had was that he had to basically distance himself not only from blacks but from race period which gives rise to the whole you know, talk of post-racialism because he's sort of presenting himself right. same thing with Harold Ford uh, right. when he ran in 2006 right. for the senator from Tennessee uh, he tried to present himself in such a way that he, that he could find that, that to the extent he could he could finesse race um, I mean, for the first time, you heard broadly about his white grandmother. Well, you, you hadn't heard much of her before, you know. And 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 then he and he did a number of things. They, and ultimately, he, his campaign he lost narrowly. He lost by between two and three percent. Um, and a lot of people attribute that loss to a very racialized ad that was aired at the end. Right. Um, call, call me Harold. Well, the well the white well the blonde woman uh, saying she had met him at the Playboy Mansion. 
Harold, call me. You know that. <laughs> Right. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was that. So, but my, my point, or one of my points at least here, is that one of the reasons that I think we have this dialogue about post-racialism specifically related to certain candidates is because these candidates try to sort of present themselves as post-racial in some sense. Well, um, perhaps, Claude, you, you can uh, correct me, but I, I, we were both at a uh, forum fairly recently when it was said that the Pew polling, uh, which uh, shows Obama uh, falling uh, rather precipitously, uh, but holding steady at uh, uh, a point of a little bit before 50% approval, and that when you disaggregate the, uh, the elements that give you that result, it is that African-American responses have laterally and uh, uh, stupendously positive. 99% say uh, this is our president and we are with him. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, uh, in that audience, a number of African Americans said, you know, we rather find ourselves living with the mantra of grin and Barrett. And I suppose that goes to your point, um, uh, Ellis, about that fine balance between uh, a, a supervening agenda or an objective uh, agenda in which all of us are to benefit, and on the other hand, the reality that a percentage, a significant percentage of the Obama uh, <clears throat> constituency is appallingly disadvantaged uh, in this time and place. Now, it doesn't mean, I'm sure, that in November or even farther down the road, African Americans are not going to applaud the Obama phenomenon, but it may mean that the enthusiasm uh, go out of the uh, commitment uh, and that we face a situation in which on the right there is great energy and determination to take back the country. With African Americans there is a, an increasing anguish about what this means in terms of real-time remediation of a situation with a great desire indeed to accept the rising uh, tide lifting all boats uh, so that uh, this um, sort of terpsichore uh, of uh, racial appeal that is deracialized uh, devils him and the devils indeed the public uh, because it, at the end of the day it is probably true that if November election goes the way the predictions have it, Americans down the road will much regret the result of election, which is quite negative, and therefore in peril, an agenda which at the end of the day is better for most of us in terms of health, in terms of education, and one hopes also in terms of uh, unnecessary warfare. Question mark to be before you, can I, can I ask you one other question? Because I'm, I'm dying to get this in. Um, we kind of have gone around this issue of um, identity in Obama. We haven't uh, head-on addressed uh, the whole biracial question. It, there was a recent story uh, in which it was reported that he had checked black <laughs> on his census form, and this you know, caused quite a, quite a bit of a, of a hubbub. Um, I was not so much surprised, but I wonder... 
and I know David posed the question too, so you can take them in order that you want, but I wondered to what extent do you think there was ever a choice? Did he make a choice? Was there a quote-unquote Tiger Woods option? Is it different when you're in politics? Was there ever a choice in his mind, do you think, that you know, he could be something else? I don't think so. Um, you know, I think Obama, one, one way of saying this and is uh, I, I just titled the book Whistling Vivaldi, and it comes from a story that happened to Brent Staples, uh, who was who's an editorialist for the New York Times. And first, he was in graduate school at the University of Chicago. He'd walk down the street. He realized he was making whites uncomfortable. And uh, they would avoid him and so on and cross the street. And uh, he... Uh, just incidentally learned that if he whistled Vivaldi, they would relax, and then he could relax. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I think one way of saying Obama's genius is that he has whistled Vivaldi so amazingly well. Uh, and I, I, I think he, he did it with, with a, uh, a very specific story. His story, uh, it, the, the specifics of it um, enables a lot of people to identify with parts of it and to and to minimize the threat about his being black uh, so that they could embrace black. People want to do that. They want to, they want to find that. that. I, I had a, a conversation with some old colleagues the other day at lunch, all of them, there were four of us, and they're white. And uh, one guy just sort of burst out in the middle of the conversation and said, you know, since, since Obama uh, has been elected, you know, is, 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 am I crazy, but are, are black people treating me a little bit more nicely than they used to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, think, I think there's an appetite for, for uh, a, 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 you know, an honest, straight-up human appetite for, for people to uh, come together in a, good, in a good spirit. And I think the the election of Obama is something that really occasions us to examine, are we there? Are we getting close to that? Are we in an era when, when that's something that, that we can really be proud of about being a, a, a Americans? And, and I, I, I think, but I, I do think maybe, uh, and he, he is, this is such an improbable event, somebody with all these talents and somebody with this mixed identity, which we would have all told him five years ago, forget it. With that kind of an identity, you can't get elected to be the president of the United States. You've got too many problems. You, who are, who's going to be your, your who, are black people going to back you? or who else? We would have seen that as a problem, but with, with this story, uh, he discovered, like probably Brent Staples whistling Vivaldi, that it enabled a lot of people to identify with him. And I, I, so I, I think there's some almost magic in that, in that stroke, and that, that, that's part of what, what happened here. Uh, but but I, I, uh, I do share uh, David's concern that, there, that there's a, a shadow uh, of these lingering and profound inequalities. You, you know, I go for, to the airport from, from Morningside Heights over to LaGuardia through 125th Street. I know you do, too, uh, and you do. Uh, you, you can't go through Harlem without, without wondering, wow, what is going to move this? What, what's going what's to make a, a difference here? And you look at every area of, of uh, American life, and you see these, these inequalities and their, their, their mysterious, almost mysterious persistence. Uh, and you hope that in this moment that this shadow, uh, that, that Obama, because I, I think he really is a... Is, is a I take him as a more straight-ahead person, with, and I trust his good intentions, that, that he's, he will try to deal with these. I, 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 that, that same thing we were at, I think Charles Blow, the editorialist, gave a talk, and 
He said, you know, people want him to have a black ad uh, agenda, but that's obviously ridiculous. He can't have a black agenda. But what he can have is an agenda that happens to hit the major issues that are impacting uh, uh, African Americans and other disenfranchised groups, and that that may be the, the way we go forward, that, that he may steer us in, in that direction. Now, as an older guy, whether I think that's uh, going to be enough or not, I don't know. But I, I think that may be the, the most viable political way to mobilize uh, uh, attention to these issues in the future. Now, I mean, he's clearly not going to have a black agenda, but, he, but if you talk to his folks in the White House, what they will tell you very quietly and very softly is that they think he's doing more for black folks than yeah. any other president. And they will say, just watch his agenda. He's never going to say that out loud. Right. But they will argue that that's what he's doing. And I think the, but, but I think at the same time, you do have this sort of phenomenon where, the, where a number of people have touched on it already, where his very success makes it harder to argue um, that you need some efforts to address these problems that remain and which, uh, and which are clearly rooted in large measure in our racial history. And, and it's very difficult position for him to be in because he, although he does um, benefit in many ways from how he deploys his quote biracial status, biracialism itself is an extraordinarily fragile status. Right. Um, you know, many, many people who are clearly African American and perceived as radically so are the product of what are called biracial unions. Right. I mean, they're, you know, this is, this is part of the history, but biracial sort of came about as a, as almost a legitimizing category for people who are the product of a married black, one black parent and one black and one white parent. Um, but the degree to which, you know, every African American in the United States is the product of some sort of multiracial Look at our beautiful union. panel. Legitimate, yes. And the children of those unions, literally in order to profit from it, like Barack Obama, literally has to have the parents on either side of them at all times saying, look, this is our offspring. Mm. Because otherwise, mm. you know, the moment they lose the backing or the visibility of those parents, people like Lonnie Guineer, she wasn't greeted as our biracial candidate for the Civil Rights mm. Division. She was mm. Looney Lonnie, the Quote Queen. Right. Um, you know, your, your parent. I mean, it's, it's, right. this is a, you know, it's, it's invisible on a day-to-day -day basis, and therefore it makes absolute sense that he would, that, you know, that you can't escape that category. Now, He's, you know, at the same time as that has faded away and the black family with a black first lady, it seems to me that he's lost some of that grace or gratitude or appeal, however artificial that appeal is, and it's a dangerous moment. The second thing that, that, that it seems to me is that, that, is that like all exceptions, um, like the good Negro in the South, you really also risk it with the phenomenon of a tipping point. And what happened to him even during the campaign when Oprah Winfrey came out, her first political adoption of, of, of a can or endorsement of a candidate, um, that was the first time, not only did his um, uh, uh, polls suddenly flutter about a bit, her polls went down mm. and have continued to go down and she's become more political about this. And it's literally like two black people on a stage. And it was, very, it was this very weird <laughs> moment. It was this very, in which, in which um, Hillary Clinton was appearing at black churches every Sunday, you know, surrounded by, and, and, and just like, you know, like the bushes, always surrounded by black school children, right. you know, and, and the black backdrop for politicians, politically, particularly our presidential candidates, has always signaled something that, you know, I care about humanity, you know, kumbaya, we are the world, but a black presidential candidate couldn't do that. And it was very odd to sort of see Barack Obama avoiding not only his own church, but black churches generally, congregations generally, 
and instead being surrounded by what ultimately turned out to be Oprah Winfrey's real audience, which was a whole bunch of white soccer moms from suburbia. <laughs> can I just can I, can I follow up on that last point? I wonder, there's also been some criticism of the fact that when he has appeared in front of black congregations, he has a decidedly different message than what he takes to white churches. And there's a lot about he's, cutting off the video games. As and, Ella said, I mean, he's a f- phenomenal code switcher, and he, he allows people to, to identify with that part of himself which he presents. He's lived many places. He is somebody who is... You know, not just multilingual, but multi. You know, what, what, you know, he, he he can inflect his language in ways that right. reflect the rhetoric of the audience right. with which he speaks. And I do distinguish that. I distinguish that from what is projected onto him, because I do think that part of the appeal is not just that he code switches, but also that being black means that many people attribute a degree of radicalism to you that simply ignores who you are. And I think that in that sense, that's the, that, that was what I was talking about originally. It's the same thing that, unfortunately, Clarence Thomas benefited, benefited from. People like M.I. Angelou were saying, I, you know, I can't believe he would actually be that conservative after right. all. And they were willing to support him despite his actual record. Right. And I think that the same thing, um, in a, if in a different direction, um, affected people who expected him to be a much more radical Democrat or much more um, radically embracing of certain causes. But that was mere projection, and that's the, the, the projection is what I'm, I was concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I, to, to shift a little bit, I mean, I, mean I, I think part of the problem with this discussion about post-racialism, Obama, my racialism, et cetera, yeah, yeah, is that it's a little bit premature. I mean, you, you, you talked about um, the fact that throughout history, you know, black Americans have been accustomed to this idea that Many of us have all kinds of ancestry, um, but we also accepted the fact that under the American rules of engagement, there was this so-called one-drop rule, uh, which meant that even if you had three white grandparents and one black one, you were black. Right. You know, there, there was not, there was never this option of being something other than, than black in America. What the Census Bureau, I think, acknowledged um, Census back when they decided to open it up to a biracial category is that they're getting more and more resistance to that. Uh, and I think eventually, not probably during my lifetime, but eventually this one drop rule is going to disappear. Right. Uh, eventually we're going to, we are in fact going to have people who can tell you as they tell you in Brazil, well, you know, my father's black, but I'm not. Uh, or, or I mean, one of the big problems in certain Caribbean and Latin American countries uh, they're not comfortable call, being called white, and I mean, they're not comfortable being called black. They're trigueño, you know, they're mulatto, they're something else. Uh, they're somewhere in between. And, and I think one of the f- results of, of this increasing Latinization of America is that that way of looking at race is going to also come into play here in addition to the fact that you do have more and more biracial couples and kids are saying, well, I want to be able to acknowledge my mother's ancestry too, or my father's ancestry too, and, and why should I be prevented from doing that? I think I think I think I think, I think, I think, I think that's an evolving phenomena. But I, and, and I so does that perhaps uh, play into the backlash and the reaction? The, the demographics are not encouraging for a whole swath of white America. Of course not. You know, and, and, and I think I think you have to right. There's, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of fear. Guys, guys, I'm so sorry. I have to cut this off because I have to take questions. We're going to run out of time. I, I would, if it were up to me, I would, you know, we would do this for another two hours. But I, as you can see, there are quite a few out here. Um, can, since the mic is over here, I'm going to start uh, with the gentleman right here in the, in the shirt. I'm sorry to cut you guys off. Forgive me. 
Thank you. Great, great panel discussion. I've got two quick comments and a question. The first comment is, I think, uh, to, to Patricia, the, the comment about how Obama couldn't be seen with African-American children or in African-American churches, I don't think is uniquely racial. It's sort of the Nixon going to China phenomenon, that it's only from the people from whom you don't expect that move, uh, that those are the only people that can do it. So I think that's not just a racial, I think that's a American political phenomenon that only an, only a very conservative Republican could make a could make a trip to a communist country and not be and not be uh, just killed politically. Um, my other comment is that I don't see how you can call this country post-racial. I, I'll quote a panel I heard earlier: We have one black president and a million black men in prison. There's just no way to call this country post-racial until this whole society is. Um, my, my question, though, is I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about Michelle Obama because she was a real lightning rod during the early parts of the campaign when she dared to talk about some of her racial experiences in America. The whole comment about the first time I was ever proud and people started saying she hates white people, she's, a, she's un-American, she's an unpatriotic, and then she immediately retreated. Uh, and sort of went back into a more traditional first lady role. Can you talk about how she was perceived and how you think she's perceived now? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I mean, that's an interesting. You know, that comment that she made, I guess, right before the Wisconsin primary, that for the first time in 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 my life, I'm proud of my my country, and in fact, uh, got her into a hell of a lot of trouble. Um, I, I mean, if you go if you go back to her thesis uh, that she wrote when she was at Princeton. Uh, when she talked about feeling like a stranger uh, and unwelcome on campus, it's a straight line to that to that comment. I, th- I think it reflected what she really felt. Um, I think what she I think what she was saying, in effect, was that she was a product of a country where she just never th- thought it imaginable they would elect somebody like her pres- like her husband as president. Mm-hmm. And now they were doing that. Well, by God, I'm 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 moved. I'm I'm proud. Uh, I feel things I've never felt before. She couldn't say that in the context of a campaign. Uh, so all of a sudden, you, you have her spokesman says, well, she didn't really mean what she said. You know, what, <laughs> what she really meant was that she's proud that Americans are getting involved in the political process. That's what, that's what she really meant. Well, nonsense. I mean, she meant what she said. You know, but, she, but, she, but she couldn't say that. Um, and I think that the reality of it is that her husband had been a, had been a politician for some time. She had not. Uh, her husband was very skilled at avoiding these kinds of, of uh, things. She was not, but she was all of a sudden put out there speaking in, in, in major venues. Uh, yeah, but, but nor was he, a skilled politician, and yet uh, the analog for him is the Gates arrest. Isn't it? Well, that was interesting because, well, it, because interesting it's, 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 sort of, it's, it's sort of the same kind of phenomenon, but it was not quite as blatant. I mean, you, I mean, you, I mean, you didn't have people jumping up as Cindy McCain did but, after, but fine, after uh, I, Michelle's I, comment saying, I'm patriotic, I'm patriotic, I've always been patriotic. Yeah, yeah, but, I, but I submit it was far more consequential that the president, as the chief law enforcement officer of the land, opined about uh, the um, Racial profiling of this distinguished Harvard, Harvard superstar. Oh yeah, well, well, one, 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 one of one of his his uh, staff folks and I had a conversation in the aftermath of that event, which he did backpedal from it, and he said, "Well, you, his first reaction, he was being Barack Obama, a black man. The second reaction, he was yeah, being yeah, president." I, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I understand <laughs> the, the, the morphology here, but the point is that it, I think, has given a kind of tincture to his uh, performance from that point on. Uh, you say. 
Shouldn't he have just said one more word about this? It, it really wouldn't have cost him probably too many votes. Couldn't he have just then uh, have a, another ictus there? And but what, that, one more word, which would have been what? Well, it depends on what the, situ uh, the situation would, would be, but uh, it, it seems that he, he is a little gun. should have said it's an open case. I have no comment. He really should have. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he knows no, 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 should have yeah, said you know, We all know. No, no, that's not my point. But I'm talking about <laughs> Not then. No, absolutely not. No, I quite agree. But are, are you saying, David, he should have gone further along the road he went down the first time? Uh, well, the, the, the two ways of looking at that. He invited that question, of course, which became so right. faithful. Uh, it, it didn't just come. Uh, please ask this question at the end of the healthcare discussion or presentation. So, healthcare uh, was, in a sense, infected by this, uh, 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 this obita dicta. It was okay. totally obscured. We got to. Can, can I just say one word about <laughs> Michelle Obama, sure, sure. though? I mean, because I think Michelle Obama has been the source of some very interesting discussion within women's groups and, and in terms of her sim symbolism as a liberated woman or as a woman, uh, as a contemporary uh, feminist symbol. And uh, it's, it's a division between the perception among black women and among white women that has, uh, you know, been, you know, has afflicted us since the 70s, um, which is um, that, uh, you know, I think for many African-American women, the aspiration, even when I was in college, was to become seen as more beautiful, as more acceptable. Not to, not, to, not to say that to be accepted is to be romanticized. I mean, not to be in love with romance, but to be a romantic object to some degree. Not always to be associated with being more masculine or not feminine or not a woman. You know, ain't I a woman too, basically, is our legacy. Um, and, uh, and, and for many... Uh, white women, it was to come off that pedestal of prettiness <laughs> and to join the workforce. Um, and black women who have worked since they were brought to these shores, you know, there was an old statement of, you know, that when you get married, your husband sets you down in, in black society, that it was actually, you know, that the status symbol was going in the opposite direction. And so during the campaign, there were many people who, and, and even now, who were critical of her for giving up her job. Um, for um, becoming a full-time homemaker with the traditional role of first lady of having causes and no job. Um, but for many African-Americans, for her to become a fashion plate, to be in vogue, to be, um, this is, is again a kind of reversal of roles. It speaks against, I mean, it, it, it is, um, it's a reversal um, that, um, that, that is effective in, in, in a way that, that speaks to a specific history, even as it doesn't speak to the general history of white women in this country. Um, and uh, to, to be a black first lady, not just a woman, not just a female, not to be biologized in that sense, but to be a black first woman with a husband who adores her and seems to have more, you know, sort of like general physical energy between the two of them than any people in the White House <laughs> we've seen in many years, um, is something which is very gratifying. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, you know, it, it, it plays against the traditional stereotype of black women, even as it's... Um, and I think it's also edgy for white women, but I, 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 I frequently hear white women you know, um, intersecting with her a little bit, in, a little bit differently. So I just wanted to say that. We probably can only get uh, two or three more in. I'm sorry, but time is always short. Please, though. Well, the conversation has been so great, but um, you've made passing reference to something that I think is the elephant in the room on this post-racial. I think it's the media. Uh, I don't think that we're in a post-racial society, uh, especially insofar as the media are concerned. I think we're in a pre-1968, 
pre-Kerner Commission uh, society in which, if you'll remember, the Kerner Commission conclusion was that the media were partly responsible for the explosions that happened in this country because you didn't have enough representation from those communities that were exploding. And with all due respect to people like yourself and a young man I spoke with this morning from who's about to go to the White House as a correspondent, black young man, uh, when I come back to this country from South Africa and look at who is analyzing and who is reporting on this uh, moment, uh, we're in a pre-1968 moment. I'm here in Aspen. I introduced, was introduced to Aspen by Ed Bradley. We don't have an Ed Bradley in the media anymore. And I don't know whether that is partly responsible for this, but I just, it just seems to me that we don't have enough diversity in our representation of those who are analyzing the president and his policies. And to me, that's not post-racial. That's pre-1968, pre-Kerner. That was a question. As a member of the media, um, oh, that's hard. Um, because I agree with most of it. Um, I think the only answer I can give is that some of us are trying. We hope to do better. Can I, can I, can I also, I, I think that's why it's important to sort of tease out what Ellis was saying. Um, because I do think that we have, I mean, that it's more complex than simply we don't have an Ed Bradley. If you look at Fox, we have a great diversity of token faces saying all the same thing. We don't have a diversity of opinion or political perspective, and we have a whole lot of paid toadies saying things that, you know, we say, you know, they can't, it can't be racist because, after all, look, we have, I forget, Michelle, whatever her name is on Fox, and so on. So, I mean, you have black and Asian and Hispanic faces saying the most incredibly racist, awful things. Um, and so I do think there's a crisis in the media, and it isn't just the absence, it's there's been an affirmative infusion um, of right-wing fiction-making. Um, now, I also think that, you know, we are, I, I agree, I think we're moving, and I said this yesterday for those of you who, were on the panel, who heard the panel yesterday, um, that we're moving from a, a system of hypodescent, which is a system in which you have sort of one drop rule, which is a system in which um, you determine race by the... Um, by the, by the, by the, uh, the parentage um, of the least status in society. So one drop of black, which is the lesser status, then makes everybody who has that drop black. Um, and we're moving to a system, I think, of hyper-descent, which is more the Latin American uh, or Caribbean uh, situation in which um, if you have one drop of, the, of a parent of, or of, of, the, of the superior or more dominant um, social class, um, then you become a member of that, or at least a buffer member. You know, you know, and, and I think that that's why I worry about biracial and all of these exceptionalized categories um, into which Obama fits in various um, various parts of himself, because it, it, it reinscribes mulatto and quadroon and octoroon and all of this sort of thing, which, which were categories of privilege, but it, it's, it's very Latin American in that it has a kind of hierarchy of privilege based on color, perhaps, and I think there are other things that, like class that we can put into that as well. Um, but what I think is happening in the United States is we're moving from not just a black, we're still calling it a black-white divide, but it's a divide that, is, that used to be characterized as white, non-white. And so white was the dominant um, 
and powerful privileged category and anybody who was non-white, including Jews, including Southern Europeans, you know, could, uh, could hope to aspire or to assimilate over time into that category of whiteness to be as much like white Anglo-Saxon as pro- Protestant as possible. Um, and that was the definition of, 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 Mer- of the American dream. We have moved, I think, now to a black, not black category. Um, so that, um, it, it, so, that, so that the category of privilege is being not black. And that can include a whole range of, of potential, you know, white Cubans, Latinos who are not too dark, people who are, um, um, uh, you know, who are migrating from South Asia, from, um, from, uh, from, 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 um, from certain uh, darker um, parts of Africa, but nevertheless who have class benefits of one sort or another. But... The, um, the bottom and unyielding category in both of these, in white, not white, and black, not black, is black on the bottom. And that's reflected in the actual data of where, you know, of incarceration, of housing segregation, and so forth. Um, but it's, you know, it, but, it, but, in, but, in, but this movement um, is allowing um, a very stagnant stasis at the bottom, but at the same time to congratulate ourselves that, well, look, we're so much more, we're much more of a rainbow in the privileged category um, but again, it's it's it the, the bottom divide between black and not black is um, is is unyielding. Claude, you you wanted to answer. Yeah, that. I just I think we can get in one more question. Regrettably, after Claude. Okay, I just wanted to get in one quick uh, comment because I I, uh, I think what Charlene said is very interesting. I don't think it's just a, a lack of an Ed Bradley, though. I do, I do think, and this is maybe building on what Patricia said. I think there's a, a real shift in the in the culture and in, in the culture of of African-Americans and Latinos that, that uh, I was trying to allude to this in my opening uh, statement, that I, I think there, there is in play a much more individualistic model of, of, of advancement and mobility that, out there that's available to, to those young people who are now working in the media and working really in every, every walk of life. And it's very disadvantageous for them to pick up a collective concern. Uh, that can put them at je- jeopardy. That's almost the opposite of whistling Vivaldi. And it puts them under suspicion. It seems like a throwback. It seems like it's baggage. It seems like it, it sort of breaks. You don't want to be the black reporter. Like yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah. almost like it's breaking a trust that we're just about to have because we, we are hopeful that this trust is, is, getting, is getting there. And, and so the cost of, of expressing that, I think, has, has changed compared to what it was in, in, in those days. And it, it just seems like there's this... This fundamental shift. I don't know another way to say that, but it, and that, that's what I mean. That that fact of life, that elephant in the room, that situation, that predicament, is is uh, worrisome to me in light of the, of the fact that these inequalities persist. Because how will there then be a voice that directs attention to their remedy? We got uh, one more. How about right here? Thanks. This is a great discussion. My question is about conservative criticism of Obama. At what point, and how do you go about distinguishing between a kind of critique that's a code word for a racial critique, and then when does that then become a way of sort of shutting down or marginalizing what could be a legitimate political criticism by simply chalking that up to a kind of racism? And I'm thinking specifically of the Tea Party movement, which I think probably combines elements of both people who are ideologically concerned about big government, but maybe who are also very much racially uncomfortable with a black president. Well, I mean, I, I don't think you necessarily even need to separate. Uh, I, I think you take it on for what it is, and you analyze what they're saying. I mean, I, I, I called up the fellow who runs something called TeaParty.org, 
out of curiosity, and and I and we had a nice conversation, and I said, and he was talking about you know we want to take the country back, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, and and who are you want to, who do you want to take the country back from? And he paused for a second. He said, big businesses, corporations, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, none of these people, except those who are really, really, really way out there in the fringe, are ever going to acknowledge that what they are saying has any racial component to it. We that that's become just not allowed in civil discourse in American society anymore. Um, I, I think those of us who take on the responsibility of trying to interpret these things, you have to bring our own uh, awareness and our, and our own sensibilities to bear and say, well, you know, this thing is clearly some racial component, this thing is not. They, they say, yeah, sure, they may have some legitimate grievance about a certain set of government policies, maybe they don't, but I, I, don't, I don't really see a need to, to try to say in effect these are good guys because they're not racist, you know, and, and these are the racist uh, yeah, sort of Tea Party types. I, I don't really see why you need to do that. And the paranoid style has been a uh, perennial in American politics. Yeah. Uh, any other, any closing remarks before we go? Hello, remarks. <laughs> <laughs> How can I refuse, Doc? I don't know how this is going to come out, but I want to tell you that I've been frustrated during this panel about the intellectual uh, nature of it and not the non-personal. Uh, I'm 66 years old. It was six years ago that I realized I was really ignorant, thinking I had a pretty good education, pretty good life's experience. What I realized was that by chance, I was born in America 66 years ago, white, male, and of educated parents. The odds of that worldwide are less than a quarter of a percent. I didn't. I'm on the most privileged class. And it, just the timing of it all was that uh, the whites in America were, in, were the majority and they set the rules. Until I... Until I heard from others through leadership training and so forth and diversity training about their life experience, I, I thought I knew it all. Now I feel I'm handicapped because I didn't live the life of the majority of the people on the planet, people of color. And until we talk about privilege, birth chance, and get down to the personal experiences of, of each other, we are we're going to continue to have this stupid intellectual debate, you know, that's going on, fed by the media because they like to create conflict. So I look forward to 2050 when whites are in the minority. I think we will be a much kinder, more compassionate country. And and I do believe that the people of color have a richer life experience. To me, Obama grew up in Hawaii. Think about his the richness of that of that society and the way they think, and you might understand why he's the way he is. But until we until we get out of our mindset and our frame and our and our birth chance, you know, I don't think we're going to have an honest conversation. We have two seconds for yeah. response if anybody. Well, <laughs>
I look forward to resuming it in 2020. 2050. I mean, I, I, just, uh, I, I would just say about the 2050 observation that's based on obviously census projections going right. forth to you inside the 2050 or 2040. But I think the problem with that kind of projection is it assumes we're going to have the same categories right. in 2040 and 2050 as we have now. I'm not at all convinced we will. I, I don't know whether we're going to become a majority, quote, minority country or not. I do know we have, we have by you know, semantical artifact, classified a lot of people as non-white who where they came from think they're, they're white. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what those numbers mean in terms of where we're going. Or the, econ or the economic power and its distribution. And, and I also think that it's, you know, uh, that, to assume that simply because um, whites will be in a minority that the power distribution will um, follow is, you know, is to ignore South Africa, for example, or the history of of many societies in which you know the power remains quite static, and that, that again, that's one, one thing that worries me about the the, you know, the the dynamism of labeling, while the power remains. But apparently, um, we need quite, another quite panel to talk about our personal yeah. stories. Yeah. But, but no, I also think that it's that it's that it's not just about personal stories. Part of part, part of what worries me is in the majority minority. You know, that, that if, for example, we had a situation in which our democracy continues to fray by 2050. Um, and um, the power follows those, those who, are must, much, who are most educated, then it will also follow that according to racial lines. And so that, for me, implicates not just personal stories, but the structure and the funding of education and the, um, and, and, and the, the way in which power is, you know, gives um, to certain populations and not. And so I am just as concerned about the structure as the personal stories. I think uh, we have to end there. Uh, I wish we could have got everyone's question in. Thank you guys for coming.